Hey everyone, and welcome to On Trial, the podcast where we explore how to build your practice, trial tactics, and what can make and break your case. We're your hosts. I'm Matt Heimlich. And I'm John Riswold. And today we have a great interview with a great guest. Jay Stephanie from Levinson and Stephanie in Chicago talks to us about commercial motor vehicle cases and trucking cases and really what makes them kind of a unique type of case within the field of personal injury. John, tell us a little bit about your conversation. Yeah, so I had a great conversation with Jay. I've known Jay for a long time, and what their firm really specializes in is commercial vehicle cases, particularly big truck cases, um, you know, tractor trailers. And when you look at a case uh, involving a tractor trailer and you see, for instance, it's a rear render, you know, anybody that's done auto work looks at a rear render and says, all right, liability's in the bag, I'm good. But with a truck crash, there are so many more layers to it to help you not only prove liability, but really enhance your damages by using the liability. And so I talked to Jay a lot about that and how a truck crash case really is different than your run-of-the-mill auto case. And he had some really, really cool insights, and it was really exciting to, uh, to learn how to take these cases and really maximize them. So I'm, I'm very excited about the interview and really looking forward to everybody listening to it and learning a lot. Did a real nice job with the interview, and Jay had a ton of great information. I'd say one of the things that I took to heart the most was that the necessity and the importance of taking action early in a case. You know, a lot of times with auto accidents, you can kind of wait, you know, till the dust settles and you wait for the police report or the investigation into the crash to kind of occur, and then you can just take that and run with it. In a truck case, and the way he described it, it's really important to get that preservation letter out right away to get an inspection out right away, get out to the scene right away. You know, that all can really make a huge difference in your case because you're getting the evidence immediately. You're getting your uh, expert potentially out to the scene to do their accident reconstruction and to take a look at the truck itself, download that hard data from whatever the computer is on the truck. And that can really make a huge difference in getting a good result on your case. Yeah, I really like that. And once you have all that information, you have all of the data and you're working with consultants who you may use as experts down the line from the get-go, the case becomes very simple in my mind in the sense that I think most of us at this point who do trial work are familiar with Rules of the Road, the Rick Friedman Rules of the Road book and the principles there. But these cases, um, much like a nursing home case would be, they're rules cases. There are federal guidelines that are very explicit as to what drivers have to do what motor carriers have to do. And Jay really lays it out in this interview and, and shows us exactly how to use these rules, how to take them and, uh, you know, conduct effective depositions using the rules, using the federal regs to really, again, enhance your case. And these are cases where you can use some of these rules to even get punitive damages in some instances. So that was really interesting and a great insight from him on how to employ the rules. Absolutely. It's important to remind the jury in cases like this that these are professional drivers. You know, they have an extra license. They have a CDL. And in addition to the federal rules, they're supposed to abide by the rules set forth in that state's CDL manual. So there's a lot of paper that you can put up and show a jury and say, listen, I'm not just making this up. These are well-documented governmental sources that set forth the rules and requirements and what's expected of professional drivers. And like you said, once you have that established, once you can set uh, apply it to the facts of your case, show the deviations, show the violations. And then, like you said, if the violations are egregious enough, you know, especially on the company side, you know, you may be able to move into that punitive damages area. The other big difference, too, that uh, 
we talked about is the fact that this is not just driver on driver. If I rear end you, I'm on the hook, right? And it's just me. But here you've got a motor carrier, you've got a professional driver who's working for a company. And oftentimes those drivers are a little bit hamstrung by the company itself. They're pushed beyond the rules, beyond the limits. They may, may not be properly trained. They may not be properly supervised, or they may just be working much harder and longer than the regs allow. And there are many instances where you can show that it really is the corporation putting their professional driver at risk and by proxy putting everybody else at risk and decreasing the safety of everybody else simply so that they can put profits over safety. I think Jay did a great job in talking the different ways that you can explore the dynamics between the driver and the company and potentially the areas in which those dynamics come to a conflict. You know, you may end up having a sympathetic driver working for a company, like you said, that's putting him in harm's way, putting other people in harm's way. And you can kind of, you know, if you have a driver who's basically in distress because of the situation the company puts them in, you know, that's going to be really valuable to your case. Absolutely. It's just about making sure that you can use the rules to show that not only the driver, but the motor carrier are on the hook for these very serious damages. Um, you know, I learned a lot about these commercial vehicle cases, and I think more and more as we, you know, work remote or as the world changes, so many more of these vehicles are on the road. So many more of them are getting into accidents. And this is just very vital information, I think, for anybody who tries cases to learn how to handle these cases and treat them differently than your run-of-the-mill auto cases. I think you'll really be able to benefit your clients and your practice by treating them um, as special cases because they are. Absolutely. I know I certainly did. I had my notebook out writing things down. There's a lot of great insights from Jay. So let's let's get into it because you guys had a nice long conversation. I don't want to step on too much of the great content that you guys give us. So now we have renewed John's interview with Jay Stephanie. Today, we're going to be talking to Jay Stephanie. Jay is the managing partner of Levinson and Stephanie in Chicago, um, who handles primarily commercial vehicle cases, wrongful death cases, and other uh, significant auto cases. You're the uh, vice chair of the American Association for Justice, sole practitioner in small firm section, also a super lawyer, an emerging lawyer, a leading lawyer, and many other uh, great accolades, but also uh, a longtime mentor and friend of mine. So I'm very happy to have you on to talk a little bit about commercial vehicle cases, what makes them unique, what makes them different, what makes them something that someone should not dabble in, probably. Um, but right off the bat, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background and how you started getting into the world of commercial vehicles? Such a glowing introduction, John. I have to stop blushing. Hopefully that doesn't pick up on, on audio. No, we're not going to um, use any of the video, so it'll be good. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing this for coming up on 15, 16 years now. Uh, all of it has been... Uh, fortunately, a, a trial lawyer, plaintiff side. Uh, it's all I've done. It's all I know. Uh, thankfully, better for worse, that's all I know. Um, I'd say probably the last eight to 10 years, uh, we've really sort of leaned in on truck cases. Uh, I, I enjoy them. Uh, I know it sounds weird to say they're you know some of the worst uh, types of cases in terms of the impact on our clients, but 
they're the kind of cases where I feel like we can do a lot of good for individuals and their families. And, you know, they're, they're, I guess, fun to me in that they're interesting cases. Everyone is uniquely different and the same all at one. Uh, there's a lot of rules, which makes it interesting. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I enjoy that working on those kinds of cases and, you know, we've, you know, fortunately for us had some really good results for our clients and, um, you know, it's an interesting, interesting line of cases to work on. Absolutely. And you have the benefit of not having to have done what I did, which is slog it out on the defense side and just wish that you weren't on the defense side for years and years. No offense to anybody on the defense side that's listening, but, uh, lucky for you. And I'm glad I I was able to make the switch. Um, no, you're, you're, you're right. I, I don't have the advantages that you have of knowing what the other side is thinking. Uh, if I knew what they were thinking, <laughs> we might not be talking right now. Um, so it's, before I had ever handled a truck crash case, and admittedly, uh, it's not something that I uh, handle. Um, so I'm going to step back. Um, so before I had ever handled a truck crash case, um, I didn't understand how different they are from your everyday car crash. For instance, if you have a a truck crash case that's a rear-end crash, it's not the same thing as uh, a car crash that's a rear-end crash. Um, Talk to me a little bit about some of the major differences you see between commercial vehicle crashes and uh, regular everyday car crash. Sure, and you you touch on, I think, a, a common misconception amongst some of our fellow trial lawyers is a truck crash is just a car crash with a really big vehicle. And there are a lot of potential landmines that can get plotted over in a trucking case if we're not sort of careful with that. Uh, You know, and it sort of runs the gamut of the differences in terms of, you know, what happens pre-lit you know, that sort of immediate investigation time frame, the discovery written and, you know, depositions are all different. Um, you know, the whole structure of the case can be pretty significantly different. Even if you're talking, you know, case A, which is a, you know, Honda Civic rear ends, uh, you know, a, a Cadillac CTS versus a situation where you've got an 80,000 pound tractor trailer set up that rear ends a Toyota Camry. Sure. The, the basic crux of the argument is, well, the person that rear ended them wasn't paying attention or should have, you know, slowed down. The difference is there's so much more potential evidence in a trucking case. You've got to get on that immediately. You know, we, we try and run through, you know, a, a sort of a checklist as soon as we sign up a trucking case, um, you know, we have to get on as soon as possible, you know, that attorney's lien letter goes out, but it is a full on spoliation letter telling the driver, the motor carrier, the insurance company, here are the things we are putting you on notice of. We want you to preserve. There's a whole list of items, but one of the biggest aspects is the actual truck and trailer. We want to get one of our 
experts, you know, we use consultants on all of our trucking cases. We want to get someone out there to do an inspection. And, you know, I typically, one of the lawyers from our office is very, I mean, I've done, you know, probably half a dozen of these where you're going to the tow yard, which is a, frankly, it's an exciting, fun experience. It sounds um, kind of cool, sort actually. Of, yeah, you get to sort of, you know, play blue collar worker, go out there, slug around and just to watch these guys. And, you know, you learn so one, just going to these inspections, you learn so much about how everything works, but you have to get in there and have someone taking a look. Is there a problem with the brakes? Which sure you could have a problem with the brakes in your car versus car render. The difference is in a trucking case, they're the drivers are required to do a pre-trip inspection every time they start to drive. So that's a big deal. You know, get out, see that. There's the download data, all those. There, there's just a lot of stuff you need to do right away. And then that's not even getting into, you know, the different uh, counts or theories of, uh, you know, theories of your case, you know, negligence, all that, setting your case up and discovery. Yeah, it's just, you know, the big thing I'd say is it's knowing what you need to do right away. And, you know, not to sound Rumsfeldian, but you need to know what you don't know right off the bat so you can go out and find that information and get it locked down. Absolutely. That makes perfect sense to me. So a truck crash walks in the door. You talked a little bit about the checklist that you're going through, and some of it is you know, we want to preserve this evidence and that evidence. We want to prevent spoliation. Um, you're getting out to the site. What kinds of experts are you using right off the bat as consultants? Or are they biomechanical engineers? Or what are we talking about? So typically, uh, the inspection aspect of it, which is the first sort of step, is, you know, we use a consultant who knows the sort of the mechanics of things enough to be able to do that actual inspection. He has the technical expertise, I guess the computer expertise to be able to conduct the download. And that isn't always simply connecting a laptop to the, the ECM. You know, oftentimes in the significant crashes, if those are damaged, you have to be very careful because if you power up the engine, it, er it resets and erases the data. So you want to make sure you've got a consultant that knows what he or she is doing. Um, but they're, they tend to also be familiar with, if not the rules of driving to the level where you have a different expert for that later, but they're familiar enough to be able to tell you, hey, the, here are some things that they should have caught before they even started driving that day. And those are the those are the big things. Plus the the details of the crash itself from a uh, data standpoint. You know, speed, acceleration, deceleration, GPS coordinates, stuff like that. You can get all of that immediately. That's the expert you want to get and sort of be familiar with, so you have a good enough relationship that you can put a call into them and say, "Hey, we just got a case." The tractor trailer is in such and such a yard. Can you meet, you know, how soon can you get there with me? You know, and it can be within, you know, a few days, once you get that preservation letter out. And it, one of the nice things, I guess, with trucking cases is 
it's not unusual that the the defense attorney has been notified sometimes before law enforcement. And it's not uncommon to have a situation where if the actual defense lawyer isn't on the scene as they're doing reconstruction report and all that with the law enforcement, someone from the insurance company is probably there. You know, they have these rapid response teams and absolutely someone from the motor carrier, the trucking company is going to be on scene. And that's where you have to be aware, especially with these uh, preservation or spoliation letters is they have access to data that you will never have access to because it's at a certain point in time. And that's part of it is getting them to preserve that raw data. You're not looking for their work product. You're not looking for their reports. You know, you're looking for any measurements and, you know, just the raw data from those. And you want to make sure that you're thinking of that so you can put that in your preservation letter at the outset. What do you do if a client comes to you later, the, the truck's been repaired or it's gone and all this data, all this information has escaped you. Is the case dead? No, no, it's, it, I prefer <laughs> the other ones. Um, but it's, you know, there, uh, like I said, if it's, if it's what's considered a preventable accident, I hate the word accident, but there, you know, it's in the federal regs defining a preventable accident. Um, the motor carrier has to report that. So they're already taking certain steps and odds are pretty good that they have done, you know, they're decent. They've done a, a data download. They've done an inspection. You can usually get that raw data. Typically the judges are allowing, you know, so long as it doesn't get into, you know, opinions or work product, the, the raw data itself you can typically get that. You know, the consultants, if you got a good consultant, he or she can usually work with that. It's not the best. You're relying on whatever consultant they used to do the download. Now that said, I've had the same defense consultant doing the inspection on, I think, two of the last three cases, trucking cases we've had. These, these folks know each other. They work, you know, with each other, quotes, heavy quotes over the with, you know, because they're at the same inspections all the time. They're generally very cordial. You know, they'll have their comments about each other to you in private, but they're, they're professionals. You know, I'm, I know I'm going to disagree with the defense consultant's opinion, but typically you can trust that the measurements that they're getting, and it's, it's, you know, it's a data download. It comes out in certain file types that, you know, your person should be able to take a look and see if something looks sketchy. You know, the bigger concern is that, you know, it's a situation where they say, well, it was damaged. We weren't able to get the download, which whether you believe it or not, unfortunately happens. So it's a little more difficult to contest it, but we've, we've absolutely had cases where we get them a little later in the game. Um, and we, we've, been able to do all right. And I think, I think if you know, if you know the steps to take, you, you can re recover from that pretty, pretty quickly. 
I've never, uh, I take that back. I've met one defense expert whose opinion I agreed with, and it was because he didn't know that it helped me. So I totally understand. (laughs) Those are the best ones. Right. They're not, they're not usually the people we agree with. Um, You mentioned it a little bit ago, and I want to bring, bring it back to bring the conversation back to, you said, everybody knows the rules of driving, the rules of the road. And for people that might be listening to this, that means two different things. You know, there are the rules of the road we learn in driver's ed. And then there's the Rick Friedman rules of the road Bible that I keep on my nightstand. Um, these cases, these cases are cases that you need to be able to use the rules of the road in both senses, right? Absolutely. You know, it's, it's, it's tough to get, especially to get a jury excited about the rules of the road that come out of the, you know, little driver's manual that we all saw when we were, you know, 15, 16 and really get into the details of those. It's different when you're talking about a professional truck driver that's on the road, again, with sometimes up to 80,000 pounds of steel and cargo, where they have not a regular driver's license, it's a commercial driver's license. There's separate training and education for that. There's road testing. You know, so... And there's a whole set of, you know, federal regulations that go along with it, but also the CDL manual lays out all of the things that these folks are supposed to know. And when you get to the Rick Friedman rules of the road, it makes it a little more convincing to set up sort of safety rules that everyone can agree to because while you can get jurors or focus group participants to sort of be, yeah, I get that you're not supposed to speed. I get that you have to be careful when you change lanes. It's different when you're talking about their a professional drivers driving this rig and they have learned specifically the importance of space management and they are supposed to know stopping distance. You know, stopping distance breaks down into, you know, reaction time, Break time, you know, it factors in conditions of the roads. There are specific rules for hazardous conditions. You know, so if if you or I are out driving in the rain and we get into a car crash, we can say, well, yeah, you know, it was slippery out, but the person that we hit, another car driver, they knew it was slippery too. The difference is there are no rules that say we're not supposed to be on the road when the conditions are bad. There's a specific federal motor carrier safety regulation that discusses hazardous conditions. And it says they are, they must, they must reduce their speed. And if the conditions are bad enough, they must pull off the road as soon as it's safe. So if you get bad conditions, they can say all they want oh, well, I lost control. It was slippery. But the more they say that, the stronger your case is that it's a hazardous conditions case and they should never have been on the road in the first place. And that's not even, we're we're not even getting into disqualifying situations where the driver should never have been on the road in the first place. You know, you get into fatigue or hours of service or, you know, alcohol or something like that, or, you know, their medical card 
wasn't up to date and they had a con- condition. You know, those, there's a whole slew of uh, allegations of, of negligence or worse uh, that you can make from that standpoint. So it's being familiar with those both versions of the rules of the road and then being able to apply them with, you know, my experience. And I think other trucking attorneys would have a similar experience. Those rules carry a lot more weight with the average person than saying, do you remember how far you're supposed to stay behind? You know, because professional truck drivers, it's in the, it's in their driving manual. More often than not, the, the big motor carriers have their own employee driver manuals that if not merely repeat all of the standard ones, sometimes they'll have a little more forceful or additional uh, rules in terms of how they want their drivers to behave. So you've got great federal rules. I mean, the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration puts out their regulations. Those are hard and fast rules, right? Yeah, and those those tend to be more of the, you know, the, the hours of service stuff, uh, fatigue, the hazardous conditions. They then, when it comes to the actual sort of detailed driving, for lack of a better, lack of a better way to put it, they often will reference state requirements and stuff like that, which then is mirrored in. So every state has its own CDL manual, commercial driver's license manual. Now, my experience with the exception of maybe some slight numbering differences, they're all the same. I mean, almost verbatim, they're exactly the same, which makes sense because they're interstate drivers. They have to adhere to, you know, the federal regs and, you know, they want to make sure everything's sort of up to snuff. Um, you know, so it's the, the, those federal rules, though, give you a really strong basis for your theories of negligence, um, not just for the driver, <clears throat> not just for the driver, but also for the motor carrier who you've named as a separate defendant. They have their own requirements in terms of making sure, you know, all of their drivers are abiding by the rules, making sure they are, you know, they have strict guidelines on what qualifications a driver has in order to hire them, maintaining those qualifications. So it's sort of the hiring and retention. You've got all of that for the trucking version of a negligent entrustment. You have all of those rules, what they're supposed to do laid out in the federal regs. And that sort of transitions into, you know, knowing who your defendants are, but then after you have filed suit, being able to craft written discovery to get to know what documents you need because you know what they have or at least what they're supposed to have so you can get at that. And then when you get it, you know when it's missing something. We're talking about you know getting in discovery, certain documents that you need, or just getting the case in suit and getting it moving. Are these cases that you feel need to be put in suit or are they pre-litigation cases that can resolve without ever setting foot in a courtroom? I know there are some people like you and I that I'd love to have every case in court and and file it. It might not be in the client's best interest in some cases. Um, And there are other people that don't 
ever file suit and they simply just try to settle cases. And if they need to file it, they send it out to somebody else. Um, are these cases that are ever really resolvable pre-suit? That, that's a good question. And it's the sort of, I'm going to try and tread lightly with my, with my answer. There are, there are, Fortunately, for the for our clients, you know, there are certainly truck cases where there are relatively minor injuries. If it's a situation, you know, we always, while we advocate for our clients, we always have to at least somewhat be mindful of case expenses. You know, if it if it's a big case, we're going to spend what we need to spend to get the best result for our client. We can on the small, potentially smaller value cases, you have to you know keep that in mind. The hard part is with those trucking cases, you have those windows of opportunity to get evidence and it costs you money to get that evidence. So you have to be really careful with that. You know, we typically, you know, we typically get our consultant out there and we want to get that stuff done. Now, sometimes there's not enough damage to the truck where it was ever taken out of service you know, that's a little different because then they have it right back out there. Um, but, you know, in terms of filing suit right away, we almost always file suit on our trucking cases. And a big part of that is I would much rather have a judge overseeing my access to potential evidence than nobody. Um, you know, I'd rather get it in suit and get working on it and start getting the information. And if we have to, you know, stretch out the discovery process because we're so early, you know, our client's still treating or whatever, I, I'd rather do that and be in suit. Um, you know, sure, there are times where, you know, if the liability, sometimes where liability is just ridiculously clear, the injuries are straightforward, not very severe. You know, the other side may say, Hey, you know, would you be interested? I'm sort of contradicting myself here, but you know, trucking cases more than the others. If the defense or the insurance company comes to me very early and says, Hey, would you like to get, you know, this seems like something we can get resolved it raises a very big flag with lights and sirens and people jumping up and down saying, Hey, I bet they're hiding some really bad facts that they don't want you to get in written discovery, or they don't want you to depose anyone. So, you know, the, the thing that shapes that sort of sets it up really nicely is, you know, when you have a, a trucking case, more often than not, the injuries are going to warrant some of the expense of that initial stage of investigation. So you want to get it in suit and have fun litigating. It is fun to litigate. I agree with you hundred <laughs> um, percent. It kind of leads me to my next point. You know, these are, there's intrastate and interstate carriers we're talking about here and mm -hmm. the licensure in different states and different states rules versus the federal regs. Where do you want to file these cases? Do you want to file them in federal court? Do you want to file them in state court? Are there advantages and disadvantages? Talk to me about the choice of venue. Sure. It's, you know, the intrastate versus interstate, that tends to be more an issue of what coverage is available. 
So the federal federal law, as of right now, uh, I think they're actually having some committee hearings today on increasing the minimums. But federal minimums for interstate uh, motor carriers is seven hundred fifty thousand. That's the one exception I know. If you're carrying hazardous materials, I believe it's five million. But so typically, we're looking at cases that are interstate. Um, and in those situations, more often than not, we have the ability to file in federal because we usually have diversity. Our damages are almost always over 75,000, but it's typically you've got diversity because, you know, living in Chicago and handling cases throughout, you know, trucking cases throughout Illinois, Illinois and Chicago are hubs. So there are trucking companies from all over the country that are driving through our wonderful state. We have clients that can be unfortunately timed traveling right through our state. It's, it's interesting before I started handling trucking cases regularly, you know, I was always in state court. I think in the first maybe five years of practice, I don't know that I was in federal court more than once. And yeah, I was, joke, uh, I joke that, Plaintiff's lawyers in federal courts like dragging a vampire into sunlight. Yeah, it's you know it was and it was you know it was, it was weird. Like for me, you know, it, opening up a little here, like it was terrifying. You know, you walk over into you know the Dirksen over the Northern District, and it's an entire. It just feels so different. I you know I remember having conversations with friends where like you know walking into the Daily Center versus walking into Northern District is like the difference between walking into a bar and walking into church. I mean, I'm terrified to even look at my phone sometimes, you know, in Northern District. Um, so it's, you know, and there's also, you know, what at first blush is frightening, you know, federal court, you're not back there every 30, 45 days saying, ah, we need more time, judge. Okay you're setting oftentimes that first true status, you're setting your trial date and you're setting your entire discovery schedule. And that can be very daunting when you're looking at a case at the onset of litigation, because we all know things happen throughout the discovery process. No doubt. Um, Now that said, if we can file in state court in a venue that makes sense for us. And I'm maybe a county that starts with a C and rhymes with cook. You know, sure, we're going to file there. You know, if we have a case that would otherwise be filed in DuPage or Will, we're probably going to file in Northern District if we can. Um, I mean, we filed in Northern District, Southern District, and Central District. And all of those, all of the cases I've had filed, remember correctly, they've all been trucking cases. And a lot of times, especially once you get into Central and Southern Illinois, just looking at the jury pools and being careful, some of the judicial opinions that come out of those areas, I'd rather be in federal court. Now, even up here, though, we've absolutely had cases where, for strategic reasons, we know there's a decent chance that it would get removed anyways. 
we're just going to file in Northern District and be done with it. You know, we are more than comfortable being in federal court. And there are absolutely advantages, especially trucking cases, to being in federal court. Um, I'd say the, the be diplomatic here. I think that, that one issue with federal court is the same issue that any personal injury lawyer has experienced in federal court with any type of personal injury cases. The judges tend not to be as excited by personal injury cases. And, you know, I, I, I get that. I get that. Um, and that's, that's fine. Um, that said, they also tend to be a lot stricter and not, uh, they don't take a lot of, as, as my old, as a partner, um, it's, they, they tend to, if you walk in and say defense counsel owes this and, or I've been trying to schedule this deposition for two months, they are far more likely to sort of put the hammer down and say, this needs to happen now. So from a discovery standpoint, in terms of getting stuff done, um, it, it, federal court sometimes is a little better. And that makes perfect sense. I mean, I was in, uh, I shouldn't say in federal court, I was on Zoom, I guess technically in federal court <laughs> yesterday um, via video, which was a very strange new world kind of thing. And, uh, you know, judges granting motions to compel without allowing the defendant to brief it, without allowing the defendant to really say much of anything. Because to your point, discovery is at this point 90 days overdue, and you can only really blame a pandemic so much for your inability to answer routine discovery, right? So you're in federal court or state court or wherever it's best for your client or wherever the best venue is. Um, you, you get into court. You, you're starting to get through discovery. You're getting the evidence you need. You're ready to take depositions. Are you leading off with the defendant driver or where do you like to go and how do you like to set it up? That's a, a great question for the depositions. And I still, I go back and forth. I mean, I've heard very good arguments from very good trucking lawyers advocating for depose the driver first, then a safety director. And then conversely, safety director, then driver. I think it's sort of, I think it sort of depends on your approach to the case, what your theory is. You know, is it more of this was primarily a driver issue or was this a situation where the driver was put in a bad, sort of an untenable situation? You know, and, you know, stepping back really quickly, our approach generally is you want to focus the jury's anger towards the trucking company. You know, that you want to frame it as the truck driver is, you know, this, for lack of a better phrase, this working stiff who's out there busting tail, driving a ton of miles, a ton of hours, trying to get the job done so he or she can get paid and the trucking company is sort of pushing them either explicitly or implicitly go, 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 
you know, there, there's, a, there's a great phrase in the, the trucking industry amongst the truck drivers. If your wheels ain't turning, you ain't earning. And it goes to show like they know if they're not driving, they're not getting paid. And if you can set it up as the, if you can get the truck driver realizing the economic disparity between the trucking company and him or her, you can get them frustrated sometimes. And I've seen clips of video depths where a truck driver in the middle of the deposition has essentially started yelling at his attorney calling out because he's been shown the broker contract that shows what the carrier's getting paid per mile versus what he's getting paid per mile. And it's a, it's a dynamic that if you can sort of poke that with a stick a little bit, things are going to go really well, you know, and where that especially plays out is the, the training and the understanding of the rules. And, you know, we, we just had a case recently where, you know, this, this motor carrier had this really interesting program, which is on its face, a nice program where they would take employees that had time in the warehouse that they thought could be good candidates and they would train them themselves to become over the road drivers. Now they get paid more, get it. That's great. But the downside is not all of these people were meant to be truck drivers. So when I walked through the training aspect with the driver, it was a very different story in terms of what he said he was taught when he was taught it and how well he was taught it versus what the safety director, the transportation manager, and the transportation supervisor all said, oh, no, we taught him all of those things. And when you have cases like that, if th this is a situation to, to get directly to answer your question, if you know you have a situation like that, you might want to saying, oh yeah, we train them all of this. You know, they've got all these hours and tests, but then you tell that to the driver and the driver's like, no, no, no. They never told me that. I didn't know I was supposed to do that. I didn't know how to do that. Versus is if you have a driver that has done something very clear, like there's no way they would have thought that this was okay. Like managing spay, like they're just tailgating essentially, or they're, you know, making lane changes left and right or something like that. You can get the driver to admit what they did. They may not admit that it was wrong, but they'll confess. Yeah, this is what I did. Yeah, it was okay. There's nothing wrong with that. And then when you're deposing, for example, a safety director early in the deposition, you're setting out, you know, all of your drivers know the rules. Oh, yes, of course I do. You know all of the rules. Yes, of course I do. I drive all the rules. Yes, all of our drivers follow the rules. And you start walking through, would you agree this is the rule? This is the rule. This is the rule. You know, why is it important? You get through all that. And 
they're going to set all of that up because they want to sort of, they almost want to confess their expertise and their knowledge and how great their company is. You get them early in the deposition, they're more likely to do that. Then you flip and say, here's what your driver did. Now, before you said you shouldn't do that. You agree that what your driver did, and you, you walk them through, and you know it doesn't. Obviously, you and I both know, and everyone listening knows, it doesn't always work that way in a deposition. But you, if you set it up correctly, you get a situation where you know they're either going to admit that their driver did at least something wrong, or they're contradicting what they just told you, you know, thirty minutes earlier. There are sometimes, uh, and you and I were talking about it the other day, there are sometimes when these drivers do something that is egregiously wrong. Um, I think the phrase is a conscious disregard for the safety of others. Uh, for instance, I was telling you about a case I'm handling where the driver was on his phone, and uh, we didn't learn that until we got all the DOT information, and <laughs> lo and behold, he's on his phone. Um, you know, you and I know driving with our faces on our phones is dangerous enough, but when you're driving a truck, these are cases, um, in some instances, where you can set them up for punitive damages, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I get teased in my office because I approach every trucking case as though, of course, there are punitive damages. They know what the rules are. They know what the risks are, and they chose to ignore them. That conscious disregard. Of course, we have punitives. It doesn't always play out that way, but, you know, it, it's the... And this is sort of getting into deposition technique and strategy and also tying back to you bringing up rules of the road early on. I frame or I start off almost every trucking deposition with the defendant truck driver, the defendant safety director. If my client is a truck driver, if there's a truck driver who witnessed the crash, I start almost all of those with walking through the rules. And for each rule that I think is important, I'll try to remember to circle back to this, the difference between what I think is important and what is actually important for the case. Every rule that I think is important, I'm going to walk through. And it, I try and phrase it as intelligently as I can, that it sort of fits in with the Rick Freeman rules of the road. You want to sort of be in lay terms, something everyone can understand. Where you have to be careful is, you know, my experience, the, the trucking defense attorneys tend to be a little more sophisticated. And especially federal court, you know, they're going to, I mean, we, we see it in regular cases too. I don't mean regular cases, non-trucking cases. They'll, they'll object to form. You know, or what does, you know, hazardous conditions mean? So I always have, you know, I'm a big mind map nerd. So I have this massive mind map of various truck rules that I've sort of built out and I sort of copy and paste over to that prep for the case I'm working on. And I have a clip for each one specific point or what specific section or paragraph in the CDL manual I get that rule from or what federal reg I get that rule from so that if they 
push back on that aspect, I can read the actual rule in the CD. And then if I keep getting pushback, I say, well, remember at the beginning of this deposition, you said you were familiar, you had your CDL license? Yes. And you remember you said you were familiar with all the rules? Yes. So if I told you that, you know, the Illinois CDL manual section two point whatever says blank, would you agree with that? And they say, yes. Then you get into the, why is that important? And that's an exhaustive, get them to give every reason they think it's important. And when they list everything out, everything you say, what else? Why else? How else is it important? You get them to walk through all of that. And then you lay out, do you follow the rule? Yes. Do you expect other truck drivers on the road to follow that rule? Yes. What happens if you or other truck drivers don't follow that rule? And nine times out of 10, they're going to ultimately get to crashes can happen. People can get hurt. And if you establish that they agree with the rule, they understand that the rule is important because bad things can happen specifically crashes and injuries can happen. To me, that sets up, that's your, conscious disregard of the rules and for public safety because they know what the rules are. They know the rules are there to make people safe and they then later choose to disregard them. And that's where you're also being careful because in the trucking case, you know, going way back when we were talking in the beginning, that rear ender, Rear enders are almost always going to be considered a preventable situation. And that's because space management is a critical aspect of driving a truck. They're taught over and over and over again, manage that space. Here's how to calculate out the distance. Here's braking, you know, stopping distance. Here's, you know, hazardous conditions. Here's how road conditions affect that. Here's how lighting affects your ability to see that. It's, you know, they're trained you know, every other vehicle on the roadway is a potential hazard and you have to treat it as such. So there are no surprises. And they're also taught, have a plan. Like that's another sort of watch phrase or watchword in the trucking industry is have a plan. And that's okay. If you're, if your job is to see every other vehicle as a potential hazard, that vehicle in front of you, you have to be thinking, okay, if this, you know, they, they view us as four wheelers, anybody in a car is four wheeler. So I've had drivers tell me, you know, I don't know what that four wheeler is going to do. They might, they might be an idiot and, you know, switch lanes in front of me, or they may be switching lanes because there's something in front of them that I can't see that they're trying to avoid. So they have to be prepared. Okay. If that person stops in front of me, what are my outs? Am I have enough space management that I can come to a stop before hitting them? Do I have an out to my right? Do I have an out to my left? So you can set all of that up with these rules early on. You know, what does it mean to have a plan? Why is it important to have a plan? 
Because what you're doing is you're not only setting up that they know the rules and they know that they shouldn't have done what they did, but you're also eliminating all of the excuses. Affirmative defenses is the legal term, I believe, but all of the defense excuses excuses is what they are for sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're eliminating all of the excuses that you know, either they've formally made in an affirmative defense, or you know that they're hoping to make by saying, oh, well, I couldn't go to my left because there was traffic. I couldn't go to my right because it's a narrow shoulder and then there's a ditch along the side. Okay, well, that ditch wasn't a surprise. You were aware of what was to your side. So you knew you have to maintain your front space when you're driving. I'm thinking that's through a these long, different- That's a long-winded way of confirming that every trucking case has punitives. <laughs> I mean, it makes sense that you could make a pretty strong argument for conscious disregard for the rules because they are so clearly laid out in all the regulations. Um, I can certainly see how it'd be an easier argument. I'm thinking through these depositions and I wanted to get your opinion on sort of best practices. As you're going through these depositions, do you think it's a best practice to make sure that you're videoing safety directors and drivers or is it enough to just depose them and have a transcript? We, you know, it, it, at my firm, we video every deposition we take. Um, so we, we, we do that regardless of whether it's a trucking case or not. But, you know, especially with the trucking cases, you can get some absolutely outstanding nonverbal communication. Um, and where that comes into play you know, you can't, uh, you can't impeach a witness with an eye roll or, you know, shrugging the shoulders, but where it comes up more is you can get a sense of how that person is going to come across to the jury and whether or not they look believable. And that especially comes into play if your client is a truck driver, him or herself, you want to make sure that your client looks like a good, a good truck driver, for lack of a better term. You know, and in, you know, my partner Ken does a ton of focus groups across the country on all PI cases, but a lot of trucking cases and his sort of experiences, people sort of put views of truck drivers in sort of two, two buckets. You know, you've got the sort of, I think, sort of more old school, you know, truckers are the knights of the road. You know, you think back to like when you were a kid, you know, you look at these guys uh, driving trucks, you know, you do the little like pull the fist down to get them to honk the horn. Like they're, it's amazing. Like these, they're amazing. They're great. You know, back in the olden times, they were the ones that would pull over and help a stranded motorist, you know, so you have a segment of the population that that's how they view truckers. Then you have the segment of the population that views them as, oh my God, those are those terrifying things. They get, they drive so close to me. They always seem to be going too fast or they, you know, they change lanes without, they're terrifying. And you need to be able to juxtapose the defendant truck driver, either with you know, your client, if your client's a truck driver, or you need to make sure that the jury views the defendant truck driver as that big, scary one. And you need to get them to view the safety director as this sort of removed 
corporate entity that says all the right things, but doesn't really pay attention to what the drivers are actually doing. And video goes a long way towards being able to, you know, either test it in a focus group or, you know, look back on it. And, you know, sometimes you pick up some of those, you know, nonverbal cues, even after watching the deposition later or getting, you know, your partner and associate who wasn't at the depth to see it. And they may pick up on it because you happen to be, you know, jotting down a note or something like that when they make a reaction. And then that can lead to, well, wait a second, you know, why did they do that? What am I missing? Or, you know, very, very selfishly and from a very petty standpoint, there are few things that feel better when you're doing a de- taking a deposition and you see that just massive exhale slump of the shoulders when you know that you have them. And you know that if you ever get to play that clip, at trial, that's awesome. Yeah, I can imagine how powerful that video is uh, at a trial in front of a jury, especially in those sorts of scenarios. Um, it's interesting. You said it a couple times. You know, if your if your client is a driver um, as well, a lot of these cases seem to me to be a situation where, I mean, I guess this is probably true of many personal injury cases where corporate greed is kind of driving the truck for lack of a better term, right? And the driver is just a guy trying to do his job to the best of his ability. And he's beholden to a company that doesn't really care whether he does it to the best of his ability. They just care if they profit immensely off of it. Um, How has it been for you um, sort of making that clear to the carrier, to the defendants, to the judge and the jury that their driver is sort of caught up in this and entangled in this sort of corporate greed. Sure. So the, the, the showing that the defendant driver's caught up in it. Yeah. So a lot of times, I think the most blatant example or the, I guess the easiest example where you can really hammer that point home is a case that involves either an hours of service violation or service, you know, that breaks down, you know, there's very specific uh, federal regulation language, you know, they've got to have, you know, it's a rolling uh, eight days, every eight days, they can't have more than 70 hours. Uh, You know, they can't have more than 14 hours of on duty time. They have a maximum of 11 hours of drive time within that on duty time. So there's very specific parameters. Uh, and then when they can take a rest and restarts and all that stuff, and they maintain logbooks. Um, it used to always be paper. Uh, there's e-logs. There's been a transition to making them required. Um, you know, and you know, fatigue. Real quickly, an aside or a tangent, I guess. Fatigue. You can be within your hours of service, within your drive time hours, but if you can show fatigue, you're good. Um, so that, but the hours of service and fatigue, that's really where you can get that sort of putting the the corporate interests over the safety of their own driver, not just the safety of everyone else on the roadway, but the safety of that driver. And you get the benefit when you're deposing their driver, because that driver was in a crash 
And it's not uncommon for that driver to have been injured. So you try and, you know, either subtly or with a heavy hand, if need be, try and get the point across. Like, listen, buddy, you were in this crash and hurt because you were tired and you were on the road because they were pressuring you to be on the road. And, you know, I've, I've, listen, I've absolutely had situations where it was a hundred percent a fatigue case, if not an hours of service violation. And I have tried every bit of cajoling, pleading, imploring, you know, to get across to the driver, like you didn't feel any pressure, you know, you don't get paid if you don't, you know, and they just, nope, I was fine. I had time, you know, but when it does work and you can sort of flip the driver, even just a little bit, it goes a long way for then putting pressure on the trucking company. And, you know, as an, as a side benefit, sometimes you're then creating a conflict between the individual driver and the trucking company. I'd say more often than not, we see a situation where defense counsel is one and the same, but we've also had cases where right from the outset, they assign separate defense counsel for the driver and the motor carrier. It's not often, but you know, it absolutely happens. And those are the situations where you can really impress upon the defendant driver, you know, you were put in a bad position almost without saying it. You're trying to get across. It's not your fault. You did the best you could do given all of the pressures you had, you know, and it goes back, like we were mentioning earlier, you add that in with the, you get paid how many cents per mile. Do you know what they got paid to deliver that? You're a tiny, tiny part of what they got paid. So you're trying to, you know, you're not creating a conflict between the driver and the motor carrier. You're showing them a conflict that absolutely exists. And that can help these cases that, that don't really exist in, you know, a car crash case because you can, you know, impress upon the driver you know, they're a professional, they know all the rules, they know that they're not supposed to do that. They're, they know they're not supposed to drive tired. They know they're not supposed to drive in hazardous conditions. They know they're supposed to stay within hours of service and drive time. But you know what? You were, you felt a little pressure. You felt a little pressure because if you didn't get this delivered on time, not only are you going to get in trouble, but you're less likely to be given choice routes in the future. And if you don't deliver this load on time, you're never going to make it to pick up your next load on time. And they might then give that to someone else, which means then you're losing out on routes, which is losing out on pay and time. So it's the sort of snowball of trying to sort of show them the light. I understand completely. Um, with many of these cases, uh, at least the ones that I've seen and handled or the ones that I think of more broadly are truck on four wheeler or truck on car. Um, but you mentioned it a couple times and I want to talk to you a little bit about truck on truck kind of cases where your client is also a truck driver. 
how are those cases unique in and of themselves in this niche world? There, you know, it, it's, it, it's been surprising to me over the years. Like I'd say probably about give or take a third of our trucking cases are situations where our client is either another truck driver or is a ride along. Um, and those cases, I, I think what I really enjoy about those cases, it's sort of a a few different reasons. The, just from a, an educational standpoint, I like having a client who's a trucker because then I can have the conversations I would love to have with defendant truckers off the record. You know, I can talk to them about, Hey, listen, in these conditions, you know, yeah, sometimes bad stuff happens. What are your thoughts on that? You know, and sometimes they'll say bad stuff should never happen. You know, you're driving or professional. Great. Say that in your deposition. Other times, you know, they're like, yeah, it sucks. You know, sometimes there's not a lot you can do. People cut in front of you, you know, so you, you can learn a lot. And that's plus, it's just, you know, you, you get that insight into a trucker. Um, and, and that's, that's going to help you in all of your cases, debt prep, you know, everything in terms of the more technical aspects of the case. One of the things I really enjoy is we touched on this a little bit ago is establishing your client sort of as a de facto trucking expert. And that can go a long way towards sort of stockpiling your argument that, these are the rules. All truck drivers know the rules and all truck drivers know what happens when you don't follow the rules. And, you know, one other element, and this is, this is a, a you know, a, a really important one is there's a sort of, I mean, it's like this with every profession, you know, there's, you know, there may not be a rule that says, you know, you or I have to extend a certain courtesy to another lawyer, but we do. There are certain things that you just do. It's sort of the, you know, common, you know, no, there's a, a pretty strong code amongst the trucking community and they take that very seriously. You know, we, we had a case that the defense was trying to argue that uh, our client who was another trucker merged in when they shouldn't have. And you know, one of the occurrence witnesses was actually another, we got really lucky on that one. There was going the other way on the interstate was another trucker happened to see it and pulled over to help. So we got, you know, and I remember we were deposing that, uh, it started off to defendant was taking the depth. And then when it came my turn, you know, I was sort of talking to him about, you know, a lot of the rules and establishing them. And, I sort of laid it out so that when it came time for me to talk about merging, you know, he's talking about these cars, you know, they come flying by or they're driving the entire merge lane on the on-ramp doing, you know, 10 miles an hour below the speed limit and then pull in front of the truck. And, you know, and this guy's like, I I don't understand why they do that. I don't know what they think I'm going to do. And I said, well, listen, if it's another truck driver, the same rules apply. He's like, no. He's like, a, a car can go from, you know, 
40 to 60 a hell of a lot faster than I can. And I know when I see a truck coming down that ramp, I know that they're looking at me. And if they know that they're not going to be able to get in front of me, they'll wait. But if they are ahead of me, I'm going to give them the courtesy of letting them in because I know it's going to take them a while to speed up, which helped us. But then he also threw in, he's like, but when I'm approaching an interchange, I'm not going to be in the right lane because I know there's merging traffic. I'm going to be over in the left lane at least a half mile before the interchange. I know when the interchange is coming. And that helped us too. It let me then make also an argument when it came time to depose the defendant driver and all that stuff of why didn't you move over? Why weren't you in the left lane long before you ever got there? So these are the little things you learn. And having a client that's a, a truck driver, it gives a lot more credence when you're making an argument to the jury that, you know, these people, there's a lot of rules they have to know. There's a lot of rules. And there's, there's no doubt about it. But it makes it seem less onerous or less unfair that these drivers have to know all the rules when you can put your client on the stand and say, my client's a truck driver. He's a professional. He knows all of the rules. He abides by all the rules. Now, a big part of the big caveat to this is you better feel very comfortable with your client's driving history and work history and experience, training, whether or not they've had violations of their own, you know, how they, and getting to your video point, the video depths, you want to make sure your client looks like a professional truck driver and not the big, scary, burly truck driver, you know, that walks up to you, you know, at a, at a rest stop and you run the other way. Yeah. Not at a central casting, right? Exactly. Exactly. I mean, we, we've all seen, you know, we, we've all seen the, the memes or the, you know, movies, good or bad, you know, you want to make sure that your client is going to come across really well. And you better make sure that your client wasn't violating any of the rules that you're accusing the defendant of violating. You know, where that really comes up is the hazardous conditions case. And we've had a couple of those where, you know, we have to, we either have to not pursue that as a theory of negligence because, our client was also out in the weather, so it couldn't have been that bad. Otherwise, why was our client? But we also had a great one where our, our client, this was one where our client was a ride-along with her husband, um, and it was hazardous conditions, and get rear-ended, and they got rear-ended because they were slowed, stopped, they were about like five miles an hour at most, in line to turn into a truck stop to get off of the roadway because the weather had been getting bad. That one, I was fine with that one. I'm like, yep, yep, yeah, the weather was terrible. Oh, God. And to, to make it sort of extra serendipitous, my client had spent a stretch of his, you know, two and a half decades of driving a truck doing runs through Northwest Canada and Alaska. So he had extensive experience driving in winter conditions. He's literally an ice road trucker. Right? Exactly. And when I remember having the conversation with him, this is before 
he got roped into the case as a third party defendant, which was the greatest thing that could have happened for my case. Um, talking to him about that and being like, oh my God. So what should, and he walked through everything. He's like, here's why the guy jackknifed. Here's what he should have been doing. Here's why he should have been slowing down two miles before because there's a bend in the road before where he hit us and he should have already been decelerating. He should have known, you know, he was another mile and a half from coming into a town. So he should have been slowing down for that. So it's just, you get such great information if your client is a truck driver on so many little things that you might not otherwise know about that specific crash, where it took place, all of that. One of the last things I want to talk about, we've talked about how these are rule-intensive cases. They can be data-driven cases. There's a ton of evidence that you can collect from the truck, from the company, uh, and from the federal regs. But sometimes, you were telling me the other day, some of the best evidence isn't necessarily a rule or isn't necessarily data. It's something that the company itself said. So I just wanted you to tell us a little bit about that um, and how we can use the company's own words. Sure. So this is that, uh, actually that case I was telling you about, there was a, a merging situation and that was, that was their claimed, def- one of their claimed defenses. And, you know, in discovery, you know, we always ask for any driver's manuals. So when you're setting up the rules, you know, you've got those federal regs, you've got the CDL stuff, you've got some other industry standards. A lot of the, especially the larger motor carriers will have their own driver's manuals and it, it will have stuff running from what they should wear while driving, you know, sort of HR stuff. But there's typically a fairly detailed section on the actual driving and what they expect of their drivers. And it had this one where I was proposing the uh, safety, and I use this rule with, with, with all of them. And it came down to they were debating whether, who had the right of way. You know, my client merging in, or their driver because he's driving in the drive lane and you should yield to the, or the merging traffic should yield to him. And in the driver's manual that the motor carrier put out, there was this great little, you know, you catch it when you're reading through things and you highlight it being like, oh, this is interesting. And the way they were pushing back in the deposition, they were pushing back with the Who's right? Who had the right of way? You know, it's you know up for you know not sure who has it. So the last question I asked each of the defendants, the driver, safety director, transportation manager, transportation supervisor, was I turned them to page whatever of you know exhibit D and had them read, and this is this is a literal quote from the driver's manual. Never attempt to debate the right of way. Let the other vehicle go first. Treat other vehicles as you would want to be treated with courtesy. And every deponent, as they read that, they start reading it and they're not sure where it's going. And then you can see over the course of reading the two sentences, you can see all of the life just exhaling right out of them. And they know exactly what the problem is. And those are the little things that you, if you look in all of the places you can look on a trucking case for the rules and you know, the rules, sometimes you get lucky 
by finding something that absolutely crystallizes your case. Either it locks down your theory of liability or it utterly destroys their excuse. And that was one where, you know, it's, you you make your own luck by knowing where to look and looking through everything. We all know that we all do a good job of that as best as we can, you know, as trial lawyers, but sometimes you get lucky that when you're actually looking for something, you find something. And this was one of those times and it was, you know, even after all of these years doing this, it, it, it probably jumped up to like a top five deposition moment in, in my career. That's fantastic. The harder you work, the luckier you get, right? Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it, important point to turn every page and read every page and read every sentence and every word. So Jay, thank you very much for your generosity with your time and your insight and for teaching us a lot, teaching me a lot about these kinds of cases. If someone wants to find you to talk more, or to learn more, or if someone has a case that they want to refer to you or a client uh, needs to reach out, how do we best find you? Thanks, John. Uh, so again, you can look me up. I, it's real easy. J Stephanie, S-T-E-F-A-N-I. Uh, my email is J, J-A-Y, at LevinsonStephanie.com. Um, you, know, you can also just get on our website and find all the other fun, exciting ways to reach out. Uh, our, our general number is 312-376-3812. And if you ever have any questions, you know, on trucking cases, I'm always happy to help. I feel it is absolutely a situation where, you know, we're all on the same team. We're all essentially safety advocates. Uh, and when it comes to trucking cases, I, I, I strongly believe that, you know, if, if I'm not going to get the case, I would... I would hope that someone who knows what they're doing is doing the right stuff to help their client. And I'm, I'm always happy to, to, to help, whether it's a, a formal or an informal arrangement. And I'm, I'm happy to talk, bounce ideas off me, answer questions, anything I can do to help. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Jay. Thank you for your time. Um, hopefully we can do this again soon. Absolutely. All right, and we're back. Thanks again for Jay Stephanie for sitting down with John, giving us a great interview, a lot of great insights and really practical things to help us make our cases better. And as we always do before we wrap up, we're going to give you our 30-second trial tip. One thing we can do to make cases stronger and our trials better. Uh, John, what do you got for us today? So I'm stealing a page out of your book. Uh, because I've been working remotely, I've been reading a lot more. And the book that I'm hooked on right now um, I, is – don't Eat the Bruises by Keith Mitnick. It's a great book about how to frame your case uh, pre-suit, pre-trial, and through trial in order to uh, take away some of the defense's best facts, in order to w- take away from some of the best defenses uh, that you'll see in a case and really sort of reframe your cases in a really great way. I saw Keith uh, present some of these uh, ideas in person and on a webinar in the last six months or so. And it's been a book that has really become, um, I've got it bookmarked all over the place and dog-eared and highlighted. It's, it's really, really great if you want to try cases to jury. Oh, absolutely. It's a great book. Just a section on Bordier, which is like more than half the book alone is worth it. It's so good. There's a lot of very clear, usable ideas that can work in basically any accident case. It's great. It's a great book. Highly recommended. Um, I also am going to be talking about a book. This is the book review section. All right. I, guess. I love it. Um, 
a book I just finished reading is called Leadership in Turbulent Times by Dorrance Kearns Goodwin. It is obviously is no application to today, you know, because everything's just bright and wonderful outside. Um, <laughs> but what this provided is uh, it took its analysis of four presidents and how they dealt with a crisis during their time in the presidency. So we have Abraham Lincoln dealing with the Civil War, Teddy Roosevelt dealing with a really contentious minor strike, FDR dealing with the Great Depression, and Lyndon Johnson dealing with civil rights. And it's really, you know, crisis leadership lessons, and they really talk about what's expected of a leader. And in the courtroom, you know, as trial attorneys, we're supposed to be leaders in the courtroom. We're supposed to be setting an example uh, and they talked about forging connections among people from all walks of life, really important lessons about conflict management, resolution. And again, we talk about this over and over, the power of storytelling and analogy and the importance of communicating, not just with people on your team, but with people who with opposing views that you're trying to you know, resolve an issue with. And it, it's, it's an amazing book. It's for a historical book. It's a really quick read. And I'd recommend this to anybody. And there are a lot of really easy kind of A to B applications for trial lawyers in there. It sounds fantastic. I'm going to put it on my list. Those are all, you know, some of the greatest leaders in the history of our country. So it'd be really, really interesting to dive into. The other side of it, and we don't talk a lot about it, is, you know, we're in firms and you and I are in smaller firms and there are opportunities to be a leader within your firm. And you need to be an effective leader in order to build a really successful practice. You need to be able to work in teams and lead people and push your cases and your firm forward. And so that seems like it would have great application just from a a law practice management side of things, as well as being able to storytell and communicate with everybody. So that's going, that's going on my list right away. Absolutely. It's a great book. Lots to take away from. And I think with that, that's going to be our episode for today. I want to thank Jay Stephanie. Uh, Remember you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at on trial podcasts. Send your emails to ontrialpodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate us and give us feedback on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast to help us get the word out. Until next time, I'm Matt Heimler. And I'm John Risvold. And we'll see you on trial.